Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here today with my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter, as we start a very important mini-series looking at issues around housing and the housing crisis. Anna Greta, we've been looking forward to this mini-series for quite some time. Absolutely. I think we've been talking about housing off record now for some years, Sharon, and it's so wonderful to bring together the expertise that we'll explore over the next few weeks. Housing is essential to each of us. Without housing, we're vulnerable and insecure. Our health, our safety, our ability to earn a livelihood and our sense of belonging are all intimately bound with our housing. And while we use the term housing, having a home not only brings physical security, it's deeply emotional. Housing is a fundamental human right. Across the globe, there is a housing crisis. The World Bank has estimated that by 2025, 1.6 billion people will be affected by the housing shortage. In 2019, a study by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy found that of the 200 cities surveyed globally, 90% were unaffordable, with average rents outstripping average incomes. In Australia, the housing crisis is deepening inequality and pushing some individuals and families into poverty and sometimes homelessness. Rising interest rates have created mortgage stress for many homeowners, stocks of social housing have stagnated over the past 20 years, and private rental properties have become increasingly unaffordable. Over the past decade, the proportion of people living in severely crowded housing and in boarding houses has increased disturbingly. Over the next few episodes of Policy Forum Pod, we will be exploring housing in Australia. We will ask what's led to the crisis that we're currently experiencing, how we can reimagine social housing, what role does urban planning play, and how can we address the crisis in ways that are socially equitable? What is the relationship between housing and climate change? Today, we begin our conversation by exploring Australia's economic dependence on housing. Housing comprises almost a quarter of our consumption. It's the major asset for most individuals as well as the major source of debt. What does this mean for the housing crisis and how we reimagine the place of housing in our societies? So to talk us through the economics of housing and the relationship between housing, consumption and climate change, we are joined by Dr Nick Frank. 
Earlier this year on the pod, we had Professor Sharon Friel join us with her colleague, Fran Bohm, to talk about planetary health equity and the work that's being done at the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse, an ARC laureate project that sits within the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. It was at the Planetary Health Symposium that I heard Nick Frank speak of housing, economics and planetary health. And as I listened to his talk at that symposium, I thought we should have him as a foundational discussion in our housing mini-series. Nick is a research fellow in the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse at the School of Regulation and Global Governance here at the Australian National University. He's worked with the World Trade Organization and with the OECD. His research focuses on the political economy of trade and investment governance. Welcome, Nick. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much, uh, Anna Greta and Sharon, for having me. Nick, housing, home ownership, the house market, they're common topics of conversation around the Australian barbecue, Sunday roast, or over smashed avocado at the local cafe. Nick, at the Hothouse Symposium, you framed your the beginning of your discussion by reflecting on your reaction to the housing conversations when you first arrived in Australia. I wonder if you might help us start today's conversation by telling us a bit of your story, where you've come from, and why these commonplace Australian conversations struck you so much when you first arrived. Yeah, absolutely. Before I arrived in Australia, I arrived in Australia in 2017. Before that, I'd lived in Geneva for about eight years where I'd done work in international organizations. Before that, I'd been in the UK for a couple of years doing postgrad work. And before that, I was in South Africa, where I'm from originally. And one of the things that really struck me about Australia was exactly that dynamic where everyone is so interested in the property market. And it didn't really matter kind of what their socioeconomic or sociodemographic position was. Um, they could have a really in-depth conversation about the ins and outs of the property market. You know, what was going on with interest rates, whether one should buy a single family home, whether one should buy an apartment, whether one should be looking in the city, if one should be trying to kind of maximize um, space, etc. And that was unusual because that was different to what I had seen in Switzerland. That was different to what I'd seen in the UK. I mean, of course, in the UK, people are very interested in property markets, but um, there tended to be more of a, uh, a kind of socioeconomic divide there uh, relative to Australia, where it seemed that almost everyone had some kind of interest um, or, uh, or, or investment in, in the property system. Nick, it's certainly, they are conversations that we've long had in Australia. And I think those conversations have ramped up over the past decade, and particularly after, over the past five or six years, as housing has become such a sought after co commodity, but, but such a difficult issue for so many people. And Nick, your work has explored the role that housing markets play in shaping the macro economy of Australia. And I'd love it if you could just talk through us those that relationship between the macro economy and and housing, where housing fits. I would love nothing more than to talk about the role of housing in the in the macro economy. Um, I thought you might. <laughs> so, I I think in order to understand the role of housing in what is referred to as the Australian growth model, we have to actually go back a little bit to understand kind of where how that model has shifted over time. So the Australian growth model has been 
reliant on consumption for at least the last 100 years or so. I mean, I think there is this narrative that Australia is an export-dependent economy. It really isn't. It's domestic consumption that drives economic growth in this economy. Of course, exports matter. Of course, government consumption or government spending and investment matters. But ultimately, it is domestic consumption that drives it. And for large parts of Australian economic history, wages led consumption. So as people's wages increased, we saw an increase in consumption, whether that was housing or other forms of goods and services. Starting really in the 1980s, we see a breakdown in that link between wages, uh, wage led consumption, um, wages and consumption. So... There are a variety of reasons for why this happened. I mean, one of this one of the symptoms of this is we see a divergence between productivity increases and wages. So we got better at making stuff, but workers' wages didn't keep up with that. And you, we see this quite clearly in the housing market, where for 80 years, house prices basically worked in lockstep with wage increases. Post the 1980s, that breaks and we see house prices increasingly driven by increases in credit availability. So that gives us a clue as to what happened. And basically, the growth model moved from being one that was led by wages to one that was led by asset price inflation, i.e. increases in house prices um, and cheap and easy access to credit. And those two factors um, work together, but they're also distinct. So Credit availability helps to juice house prices, helps to increase house prices, but it also helps households to maintain their socioeconomic position in the face of declining wages and increasing costs. Because in the last 30 years, we've also seen an increase in costs, particularly in terms of education, healthcare, uh, and then, of course, housing, as we've seen the state retreat from, from some of those sectors uh, as, as well as then the increase in house prices that has resulted from, amongst other things, an increase in access to credit. And so now the Australian economy is increasingly dependent on rising house prices to maintain consumption. And this operates through basically a wealth effect where your house, you know, your house increases by 10%, so you think you, you feel wealthier, so that stimulates consumption. Um, there's evidence to suggest that a 1% increase in house prices results in a 0.5% increase in car purchases, for example. So the, the consumption side of the economy is increasingly reliant on that wealth mechanism to, to generate economic growth in the economy. And this has had negative side effects. One of them is an increase in wealth inequality, um, but also an increase in income inequality, because there's a literature that suggests that Increases in wealth inequality are also associated with increases in income inequality. Had that, it's bad for the climate. Housing is the single largest source of domestic emissions, and our houses have got larger. I think the average house is size of housing has increased from about 50 square meters in you know, the 1970s to uh, over 80 square meters today. Australians live in the la largest homes on the planet. Canberrans live in the largest homes out of it any capital city on earth. So, and also Australian homes tend to be built rather badly. You know, we don't see regulation around double glazing. So they're incredibly inefficient. So basically all of the incentives are in place to build large, badly designed, highly in energy inefficient homes. But I'm happy, happy to go into depth in, in any of those, those kind of dynamics. 
Yeah, it might be really interesting for us to unpack a little bit more around the environmental impacts. Your, your exposition just now of the role that housing plays in economic growth for Australia, I think offers a remarkable insight into the housing market and to the challenges and opportunities that are there for policy change. But I'm particularly interested in that intersection between consumption and, and environmental impact. And so you've done some research looking at the major environmental impacts that are caused by excessive consumption of housing and transportation. It's an important framework, the dynamic between housing, consumption, economic growth and environmental impact. And I, I wonder if you might unpack that for us a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the carbon footprint of households is really dominated by emissions from three categories, transport, housing and food consumption. And as, as that kind of wealth effect takes hold, we don't see an increase in food consumption. I mean, you know, your, your house goes up by 10%, people are not going to increase their food consumption by 10%. It doesn't generally scale that way. But what we do see is that households will increase their consumption of both housing and transport. So your house goes up by 10%, maybe you consider buying that beach property, or maybe you consider buying that SUV or dual cab ute that you've always wanted. And the, really that's the mechanism by which the, the stimulation of house prices then has this knock-on, significant knock-on environmental effect. I mean, again, there's modeling that suggests that Australia will not be able to meet its climate commitments precisely because of expansions in the housing sector. I mean, if we keep building McMansions, it will become increasingly difficult to heat and to cool them What kind of in the context of Australia's climate commitments. Nick, I wonder if we could just go back to the earlier conversation that we were having around that disconnect that occurred in the 1980s between wages and housing prices and then the availability of cheaper credit kind of coming into that. I wonder if you could just talk us through in a, a little more detail what the factors were that led to that disconnect to the availability of cheaper credit. And in particular, I'd really love to hear how global factors came into play here. Was this something that was just occurring in Australia or is this part of a bigger global picture? And, and we know, you know, from the 1980s, there was increasing globalisation, increasing interconnection. So how did all of that play out? Yeah, I mean, this is certainly not an Australian-specific problem. It's just that Australia is one of the, the kind of poster children for, for this type of model. So again, there's a literature that suggests that there, there are in fact different varieties of capitalism. And Australia is what is referred to as a, uh, as a consumption-led economy, uh, like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like New Zealand, like Canada, uh, quite different to an economy like Germany that is dependent on exports, quite different to an economy like Sweden, where you've got a more equal distribution in terms of the relative contribution of investment, consumption, government spending and exports to economic growth. So Sweden runs a much more balanced growth model than Australia does. In terms of the kind of global factors, yes, absolutely. We have the neoliberal revolution in the late 1970s. It kind of picks up steam in the 1980s. And interestingly, in this country, it was really the, the party of the centre-left that implemented a lot of the kind of neoliberal reforms that came in in the 1980s that set up the conditions for easy access to credit um, and pulled back the welfare state and really incentivized uh, people to dive into the housing market and use credit as this palliative 
for middle-class concerns about declining wages and rising costs. And some of those policies included um, relaxation in lending requirements for banks. We've got uh, basically the broader deregulation of the financial services sector. We've got the abolition of interest rate controls on loans. So the effect of that was that it increased the number of financial products that were available to Australians. And at the same time, you see banks increasing their involvement and exposure to the mortgage market because the mortgage market was becoming larger and more lucrative for them. So in the 1990s, bank lending accounted for about 25% or, or Lending for mortgages from banks account for about 25% of total private lending. It's up to about 60% today. So we've seen this dramatic increase in banks' involvement in mortgage markets. So that's, that's on the kind of credit side. And then on the wage side, we've had various I mean, reforms, and I use that term loosely, that have kind of depowered labor and what we've seen is a decreasing share of labor or decreasing share of labor income relative to capital. So just just to back up, Australia's welfare model in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s was really based on wages. That was the thing that kept the whole thing going. Um, It's what allowed Australians to have some of the highest standards of living in the rich world. And as that model broke down, then we see credit kind of stepping in and picking up the slack that traditionally increases in wages had done. The problem with it was that it left people behind. Um, it was people that could access credit that, that were able to, to take advantage of the model. People that couldn't access credit were then, were then left behind by that model. I would point out that this is not a, a, a particular problem of the left or the right, both parties are engaged in it because it is the the kind of dominant economic paradigm in the economy. It is supported by both the centre-left, the centre-right. We saw this in the response to the global financial crisis where the first lever to be pulled was to stimulate the housing market. Even though Australia had weathered the GFC comparatively well, it wasn't particularly exposed to US banks but still the first lever to be pulled was stimulate the housing market. We saw that in the response to COVID, first thing to be pulled was to stimulate the housing market. And that was done by by parties of two different uh, political stripes. Nick, that is such an incredibly helpful mapping of what some of those macroeconomic issues are that, that have landed us in the situation that we're currently in. There's much more to talk about, but we're just going to take a very short break. Listeners, don't go away. We will be back with Nick Frank in just a moment. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Nick Frank and we're talking about the housing market and the housing crisis in Australia, but also some of the global factors that are at play. Nick, before the break, we were talking about that that very central position that housing occupies in the Australian economy, and particularly the the linkages with a consumption-dependent model of economic growth. In Australia currently, local, state and federal governments are all contending with the, the housing crisis, with the shortage of housing, with unaffordability of housing. What are your thoughts on where we need to go with key policies at present? And this is, of course, a a very big question, but is this a matter of making small changes at the edges, of making some tweaks to the kinds of policy approaches we have, or do we need to start thinking very, very differently about our approach to housing and, and where the housing market fits into our economy? Probably won't come as a surprise that I don't think small changes around the edges are going to do do a lot to to change this because housing is actually at the centre of the model. It will require major tweaks or major changes to the way the economy is structured, and and ultimately this is not just a housing question. It's a question about the macro economy. So it would include policies around trade, around immigration, around all of the factors that contribute to both the supply of housing and then the demand for housing. Um, I mean, if you made me emperor for a day, there would be a couple of things that I would do that I think could have an immediate impact. Rolling back negative gearing would be one. I don't think that that's going to fix it on its own, but it would be a start. Uh, I would ensure that housing is no longer treated or no longer prioritized relative to other asset classes which it is, it is currently the most advantageous asset class for anyone to invest in, in that you get a CGT exemption uh, when you sell your primary place of residence, we have negative gearing, you can rent your house for six years um, and not be subject to tax on it. Uh, It's exempt from means testing, I would make it uh, subject to means testing and basically ensure that capital is not being misallocated into the housing market in the way that it has been done traditionally. And that that would be a start. Then there are kind of more difficult conversations around the demand for housing, including immigration. And this, this this is an incredibly politically and socially sensitive question. And again, both the parties of the centre-left and the centre-right, in, in some respects, have avoided dealing with it in the sense that if you if you let in several hundred thousand people a year, this will have an impact on housing. So it's that question of how do we, how do we resolve the need for skilled migration, but also balancing that against um, rising house prices. But I think the, I mean, to put it broadly, I think the solution is to to attempt to make housing a less attractive investment. Now, of course, that is incredibly politically difficult to do because we have 67% of Australians that own a home. So you're asking 67% of Australians to to take a haircut on the largest asset that they hold. That said, I mean, growth models do degenerate, they do decline, and often they degenerate and decline when they're no longer able to deliver sufficient growth to, to a population. 
Um, and as the as the rate of Australian home ownership declines, as the rental, as the rate of people renting increases, as the rate of people living in housing, uh, kind of housing poverty increases, I think the calls for some kind of reform to that system will increase. Nick, I'm wondering if if this is what we need to do in order to to start to resolve the the crisis that we're currently facing. And we do need to say to Australians, as you you put it, you need to take a haircut on this biggest asset that you own in the public good, you know, to ensure that we have the kind of equitable society that many of us say we we value. What kind of conversation do you think the government needs to engage in or our political leaders need to engage in to say there are other forms of wealth creation that perhaps the government would promote for for individuals that don't rely on housing. What would your your thoughts be around those alternative wealth creation models? Or or do we need to think differently about wealth creation? (laughs) On the kind of wealth creation question, we have set housing up in such a way that, quite frankly, you'd be silly not to invest in it right now. I say this as someone who you know, as an immigrant to this country, the first thing I did was buy a house because it, it became very apparent to me that this was the, the the safe, basically the safest and most profitable asset class I could invest in. And I would argue that we can shift that dynamic. So we can shift it away from housing and we can shift it to different forms of investment that have a far more positive social impact. So, for example, we could put in place similar incentives you know, CG, CGT exemptions, negative gearing, but for, let's say, uh, green assets. So there is still an avenue for wealth creation. It's just that that wealth creation is not dependent on building very large you know, white boxes out in the suburbs that are hard to heat and cool. So that, that, that would be one solution. But I would argue that I think that the mainstream political parties are beholden to enough electoral interest that they don't really have an incentive to fundamentally change the model. I think change is probably going to come from the extremes in terms of the political spectrum. There is very good reason that the mainstream political parties want to maintain the status quo as much as possible. And this is why I think we've seen when it comes to housing, they've proposed very, very incremental changes to it. I mean, Labour's policy is not really going to shift the dial. Um, on the growth model. It's not going to fundamentally resolve uh, the the issues that stem from that model. And this is not to bag Labour. I mean, the, the, the coalition is in the same position in the sense that when you have 67% of Australians that own a home, you have a large voting public that has an incentive in maintaining the system. You combine that with the fact that you have this very influential producer coalition that is made up of interests from finance, insurance, real estate, and construction. These are sectors that no politician really wants to take on because they've got money, they have political influence, they have connections. Combine that with interest from organized labor, uh, including the construction union. And you can see why the, the mainstream political parties don't really want to take fundamentally reform the model. By the same token, parties like the Greens do because they are not beholden to those same types of interests. And interestingly, they they don't have the same types of personal interests in the model either. So, for example, Labour politicians, I think, on average own 2.3 homes. Members from the coalition own 2.4 homes. The Greens, it's 1.3. 
So they're, they're not as personally invested in the model. So I think there, there is potentially more appetite for radical reform on, uh, on, on the extremes in the political spectrum in Australia. Nick, it's so helpful to hear you talk through some of those structural issues that are baked into our economy, but but also how deeply political these issues are. I think it's really helpful for us to think about what you've described as the producer coalition and how that makes it so hard to bring the significant policy reform that's needed. We touched earlier on the quality and the nature of housing in Australia And of course, this is potentially one area where perhaps it's a little easier for government to act through regulation. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts around what governments need to do in terms of regulating the way in which houses are built. I'm appalled at the quality of houses that are currently being built when we're experiencing extreme weather events. And it's not just individual houses, it's also the way in which urban planning's taken place. And you can see that we're creating urban heat islands. You know, there, there's a lot of concrete, there are no trees. This is a catastrophe waiting to happen. Is there more scope for governments to regulate around those issues or are they still captured by that producer coalition? I mean, I, th- I think both those things can be true at the same time. Um, I, I definitely think there is scope for, for additional regulation things like insulation, I mean, a, ver- a variety of different things. I mean, the design of houses is not my area of expertise, but at least from what I've seen in, in other economic contexts, um, in places like Germany, France, Scandinavia, the regulation around house building is far more prescriptive. And what you get are better, smaller, better built homes that are way more energy efficient. So I think there definitely is a role for, for the state to step in and regulate the industry. Um, but you point to that problem, which is that we have producer groups that are very opposed to this, fundamentally because it means that you know, their unit costs go up. So it becomes more expensive for them to build these homes and it impacts profit margins. That said, I think this is probably an area where political wins are possible because most Australians that are buying a new home want a better built home. So I think compared to telling Australians that you know, their house prices needs to decrease by 35%, this, this is a way that we can get some action on, uh, on housing that, that will have a, at least a positive environmental effect and potentially a positive kind of health effect. I don't think it'll do very much to, to address, again, the root causes, the root problems that are associated with it, namely wealth inequality. But, you know, regulation around the way homes are built will certainly have an impact on some of the other things that we're, we care about at the hothouse. Nick, I'd like to just unpack a little bit more about that international perspective. And I, I think going back to the beginning of our conversation and your reflections on the other places that you've lived and the other environments in which you've worked, you've, of course, consulted for international groups like the OECD and the International Trade Centre. And I wonder if you could draw from your knowledge of other countries' domestic contents to think about the ways in which Australia could reimagine the way we view housing and perhaps become more open to the European or other models of higher density cities and more social housing. Do you think there's appetite for or possibilities for change along those lines? 
Do I think there's appetite for it? I'm not sure about appetite for it. I, I, I do think that there's certain, there's possibility for it. Um, but again, it this isn't to my mind. This is not just a question about the specifics of housing. It's about the actual orientation of the entire economy. Um, what is the relative distribution between domestic consumption, government spending, investment, and exports? So if we look at those European economies, we see that in the cases of Germany, Austria, the Netherlands. They are far more reliant on exports to drive economic growth. So housing just isn't that important. You know, it's it's not as politically important. It's not as economically important. And because of that, I think it becomes easier to regulate it. If we look at a if we look at the Scandinavian economies, uh, yes, we've seen increases in house prices there, but that that's basically been driven by the the COVID response. It's not a fundamental kind of macroeconomic. Uh, it's not the result of the macroeconomic policies that have put in place for the last 30 years. They run these kind of balanced models. And again, if you made me emperor for a day, that, that would be one of the things I would consider in terms of the Australian economy is just shifting that balance in terms of domestic consumption relative to government investment and or government spending and investment and exports. So, I mean, the Australian economy driven largely by consumption, but then you've got exports as the next largest contributor to economic growth. I would increase government spending. I would do as much as I can to increase investment in the economy. And all of this is, I mean, this is not like wild economic um, advice. I, I mean, there's, there's, I think, a lot of appetite for it within the economic community. We've seen an increase in industrial policy in other parts of the world increase in government spending and increase in investment. And this is something Australia is considering right now. So, you know, they're, they're, I think they're, the green shoots are there for a reorientation in the model. But it's really this question of how do we go about tackling housing and the politics associated with housing. Nick, when we talk about major policy challenges on this podcast, we often like to use the language and the idea of reimagining. Um, can we achieve affordable, accessible housing in Australia within an economic system that aims to continue growth? Or have we reached a point in history when reframing, indeed reimagining economic goals beyond economic growth is necessary? And, and I'm wondering in particular whether emerging ideas around a wellbeing economy give us a new way of thinking. If you were emperor for a day, is that somewhere you would take us? I, I knew I was going to get a question around uh, degrowth, and I, I've got to be very careful when, when I wade into this. On the first part of the question, yes, I think we can still have equitable, uh, kind of more evenly distributed housing for people in the economy in the context of economic growth. Australia used to be able to do this. It's only in the last 30 years that this has really happened. Australia used to have the highest rate of home ownership in the, in the world. So this was possible, but it, but it occurred under a very, very different economic system in which labor took home a much larger share of income um, relative to capital and in which housing hadn't been financialized. I mean, a house was primarily a place that you lived. It wasn't the single largest asset that you owned and the thing that was going to support you in your retirement. It, was, it wasn't the thing that you would tap into in the case of an income shock or uh, if you have to pay a particular bill. There were other systems in place to support households and families. So 
to my mind, it's it's not simply a question of, of economic growth. I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for for the degrowth people, uh, for the well-being economy people, but I think it's really this question of the nature of economic growth. I mean, if Australian households weren't consuming again large concrete boxes and you know dual cab youths, and instead were consuming a, a much higher proportion of services, which have a larger uh, have a lower environmental impact, we could still have economic growth measured by GDP. I mean, at the end of the day, GDP is just a measure of you know the goods and services that are produced in an economy. So it's that question of what are the goods and services that are being produced in the economy? What's their environmental impact? I mean, we can still have 5% growth a year. It's just that we shift what people are actually consuming. So I hope, hopefully I've sidestepped the, 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 degrowth, uh, the degrowth argument a little bit to put my foot into it completely. Um, I, I would say that in my background is actually in development economics. And one of the issues I come up against is that for developing countries, well, I've yet to see a case where a developing country has been able to sufficiently reduce poverty without economic growth. I mean, it certainly may be possible that in advanced, rich economies like Australia, we can redistribute growth, we can maybe change the composition of growth. But I think in developing countries, that there is still going to be environmentally damaging growth that, that occurs in order to reduce poverty rates. So if that is the case, then countries like Australia really have to think about how they can reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and their environmental impact to give some space to, to developing countries to, to fundamentally do what economies like Australia have done for the last 200 years. It's such an interesting discussion. And I, I could listen to you uh, talking about the role of, of housing in macroeconomics for, for a, a quite remarkable period of time. And I was really struck that the conversation that you you offered uh, at the Hot House Symposium uh, was so foundational to the discussion and debate that we hear in the housing uh, crisis. And I, I would like to shout out the recent paper that you published along with me, Megan Arthur and Sharon Friel in New Political Economy, which is titled The Shaping Planetary Health Inequities, The Political Economy of the Australian Growth Model. It's a fantastic read. Uh, and we will need to bring today's conversation to a close. And I'd like to finish by asking about this concept of planetary health equity. Uh, it's defined by you and the team as equitable enjoyment of good health and well-being in a sustainable ecosystem. And it sounds like such a superb goal for so much public policy. I wonder if as we bring today's discussion to a close, can you offer us uh, examples where this approach is already working? And perhaps give us some insights into the shifts that you would suggest to centre this as a goal for public policy. I mean, certainly within academia, there's been a lot of thought around how do we construct economic systems that operate within kind of planetary boundaries, that, 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 that operate within planetary boundaries, but also result in a kind of more equitable distribution of income and wealth in, in societies. Because certainly we could operate within planetary boundaries, but have highly unequal distributions of wealth and income in a society, which is not you know, a system that I think anyone really wants to live in. So people like Kate Raworth have done fantastic work with, on donut economics, for example. Again, we've got green shoots in places like Wales, in Scotland, in New Zealand with well-being economy approaches. We've even seen a well-being 
uh, well, anomaly well-being, uh, you know, budget being announced here. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. But, I mean, I think that really is the core. It's, it's how do we construct an economy and ultimately a society, because economy and society and politics are so tightly integrated, despite what my economic uh, colleagues might say, you know, economics doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's that question of how do, we, how do we construct that system that does the things that we needed to do in terms of the health of people, but also uh, taking into account the, the confines of the planet. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an extraordinary conversation. It frames the conversations that we're going to have over the next few weeks about housing so beautifully and gives us some really deep thinking on the ways that we can move forward. And as an aside, Nick, I've got to say, I love the idea that you have introduced a policy forum pod around making people emperor for a day. I think we will continue that and perhaps have a competition around who it is that we want to make emperor for a day to bring in some of the changes that we so often talk about on the podcast. But Nick Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Sharon, we've just spent... 40 minutes talking about macroeconomics and in, in one of the most interesting discussions about the Australian economy and the challenge of housing in public policy. It was an extraordinary conversation for me. And I know you and I have spent quite a lot of time, uh, particularly informally, talking about housing as a, a core policy challenge, uh, both in Australia and around the world, a challenge of equity, a challenge of justice, a challenge for bringing people out of poverty. And I think the description that Nick gives us of that central role that housing has played, the growing role that housing has played in the Australian economic model really offers remarkable insight for us into why it is so difficult to address the challenge. What were your thoughts? I really love that conversation, Anna Greta, and, and I agree that really helps us to think through why we are in the situation that we are now. But one of the issues that really struck me is, as Nick was talking, and particularly was talking about what happened from the 1980s, that disconnect between housing and wages, the reframing of housing as something for wealth creation. Now, all of that was really part of the rise of neoliberal thinking, of the rollback of the state of a very different way of doing things. And we're left with the legacy of that. But that also reminds us that systems macro systems that feel as though they shape everything and are impossible to shift can change. Now, I would argue that those changes that occurred in the 1980s were extremely prob problematic. We are still living with the problems created by that shift that was associated with the rise of neoliberal thinking. But it also reminds us that we can make very significant changes to the way our economy works, to the way our societies function, and to what it is that we fundamentally value. And I think that actually gives us great optimism about the way in which we can reimagine and put that reimagining into action. Absolutely. It's the questions we can ask. It's finding the movable pieces of the puzzle. Economic systems should be defined by what we're trying to achieve with our social policy rather than be our social policy being defined by a number, particularly GDP growth. Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. And I do highly recommend that paper from The New Political Economy. If you've liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we love to hear reviews. It's a great way for other people to find out about our podcast. 
We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through our email address, policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. As always, thanks to Hannah Scoff for production and Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for their amazing background research. As we said at the start of this episode, this is the beginning of a mini-series on housing. So please do stay with us over the next few weeks as we build on the conversation we've just had with Nick Frank, talk about social housing around urban planning and do some more of that really important reimagining. That's all we have time for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. 